Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, uh, welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Ian Cook, and today we're talking about Document Raj, Writings and Scribes in Early Colonial South India. The book is published by the University of Chicago Press and is written by Bhavani Raman. Bhavani is a professor at the Department of Historical and Cultural Studies, and the book really is a wonderful exploration of colonial clerks in the Madras presidency. The book argues that paper played a really important part of colonial rule and goes on to analyse these kuchri scribes, as they're called, as well as the allegations of corruption that surround them. It also looks at accountant scribes and their amazing memory skills, the changes in the education system that were wrought by the colonial encounter, also issues of forgery, and finally the use of petitions to help form a, a particular type of colonial subject. The book details this fascinating topic with with real extreme subtlety and care, and it pushed me as the reader to ask many questions about corruption and the importance of paper, not only in colonial India, but I always had in my mind um, contemporary India as well. As I said, I really enjoyed the book, and I had the pleasure of speaking with Bhavani just a few moments before. Okay, so it gives me great pleasure to welcome Bhavani to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on, and thanks a lot for your wonderful book. Thank you very much, Ian. It's been a uh, it's been a great honor to um, be invited onto this forum, and uh, I hope we can have a really good uh, conversation. So, thank you very much for reading the book and for the invitation. Wonderful. Thanks a lot. So, before we talk about the book itself, I was wondering, could you first please tell us briefly about your academic background? Uh, so, yeah, I uh, uh, was educated uh, in Delhi, and that's where I did uh, both my undergraduate and uh, my masters and my MPhil. Um, I completed my MPhil in uh, Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi, in the history department there, so it's the Center for Historical Studies, and it was a very formative experience and uh, sort of inspired me to uh, continue doing research um, uh, as, a, as a sort of a doctoral uh, student, and I applied and uh, did my PhD at the University of Michigan um, in Ann Arbor, where I worked with uh, Sumati Ramaswamy and Tom Troutman and a host of other very interesting South Asianists. Um, and after I finished there, I moved to uh, Princeton, where I taught for some years before moving to uh, Toronto, which is where I'm based now at the University of Toronto. Thank you. Thank you. So now let's talk about the book itself. The book is about colonial clerks in the Madras presidency. But before we speak about these really fascinating characters and their practices in a bit more detail, could you first please explain the importance of papers to colonial rule? Why is it, as you, as you claim in the title of your book, a document Raj. Mm, thanks. Um, well, the book is really about um, the colonial state and how um, it was co- it's constituted in the everyday. And uh, inspired, I think, um, on the one hand by uh, academic writing on intermediaries, and I hope we can talk more about that in due course, uh, but also by uh, a sense from a kind of a contemporary experience of paperwork um, in India. Um, and I think I, I came to the conclusion while writing up my dissertation work that we have to, in our contemporary times, 
reflect on the ways in which the nexus of credit investment with you know revenue and other forms of uh, economic um, logics underwrite both the demand for paperwork and the oft-repeated cry of red tape. Um, and I began to sort of work on this puzzle. And when I realized that under the East India Company's rule, especially in, in regions like South India, this phenomenon of the bureaucracy as both the kind of uh, providing the, uh, the, the interface, the paperwork interface, but also becoming the object um, of, of scorn and, uh, and criticism became ubiquitous um, in India uh, under company rule. So the company's uh, fiscal rule in some senses uh, demanded uh, paperwork. And in some ways, uh, for sure, it was uh, it built on a legacy of early modern uh, formations. Um, John Brewer, for example, has talked about military fiscalism, a certain kind of fiscal logic that reorganized uh, military in in interventions and the organization of the army. The company certainly owed its, um, uh, the East India Company certainly derived uh, many of its um, uh, uh, sort of uh, paperwork uh, logics from that and from um, uh, the qualities that it displaced. But what was really interesting is that in the late 18th, early 19th century, the intensification and expansion of credit and its connection with governance, coinciding with this idea that the economy had to be managed, uh, becomes the really important context for mapping the emergence of the colonial bureaucracy. And that's the reason why the bureaucracy and its landscape of paper becomes so important uh, in that period, in my view. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you for that. That's really framed the discussion very well. So now let's talk a little bit about these scribes themselves, the kuchari scribes, as, as, as they were called. So could you tell us a little bit about who they were, why they became so important, and why, as you talk about in Chapter 1, why they were often considered to be corrupt? Mm -hmm. Well, I became... Um, quite interested actually um, in them because I realized that um, the bureaucratic interface is really one important way by which, um, you know, protocols of trust were established. Uh, and one of the ways in which the colonial government um, uh, tried to do so was to govern these, uh, its clerks, uh, the armies of people who went around measuring, attesting, uh, constituting, writing this paper, um, uh, uh, it, the, the colonial government was very invested in tutoring them, in uh, controlling them, um, while also, in a sense, uh, relying on them more and more. And I realized that this problem of trust uh, did not uh, was not just a simple case of sort of disciplining uh, certain clerks, but it required a whole kind of reorganization of the recruitment pool of the kinds of scribal skills that were uh, put into place, of the kind of disciplinary actions that they could uh, uh, install um, uh, uh, to make sure that they were not corrupt and so on. Um, at the same time, it seemed also that the, between the archives that the Eastern Company was almost kind of doing this work to save itself from the, or defend itself uh, from the oft-repeated uh, charge that it itself was corrupt. So in a way, um, and this brings me to the kind of the work I started doing in um, uh, chapter one, uh, it, uh, the East India Company presided over this moment where on the one hand, uh, it was reliant on these uh, scribal families whom it recruited into its employment, 
um, and which it wanted to tutor and manage and you know break their caste and kin relations. But on the other hand, uh, it was also in a sense you know fomenting or folding in those um, caste logics into its very bureaucracy, while at the same time trying to present itself um, as a, a and a kind of a, a as a sort of a legitimate um, modern uh, governing entity. Right. So the the first chapter actually tries to map this out, and it began. Uh, it begins to do so by actually following the uh, the diverse kinds of families that were um, uh, mostly upper caste, mostly resource-bearing families, who um, were incorporated um, into the bureaucratic edifice of the East India Company. And it began to really try and map out how power accrued to them, um, and how, in a sense, this bureaucracy that was being put into place um, uh, was not really um, the kind of the rule of you know individuals and the rule of um, uh, the kind of the unfolding of uh, rule-based behavior, but rather very very close kind of ties, intimate ties between caste and kin. Thank you so much for that. Let's talk about one particular type of, of scribe, um, the sort of accountant scribes, because these were extremely important to colonial rule, as, as you describe uh, in the book. But they were also considered at the same time quite untrustworthy. So I was wondering, could you first tell us a little bit about this class of scribe and, and what made their skills so remarkable? So as I said, what, what was really interesting to me, the reason I ended up writing a lot on the Kanakapile or the traditional kind of revenue accountant and his and the sort of the, the, the way in which the bureaucratic interface used him um, as well as made him a kind of an object of reform was because I realized that the landscape that I was interested in mapping, which was this um, landscape of how um, a, a bureaucracy functions as a kind of mediation, uh, could be only visible through uh, looking at that particular um, figure in the colonial bureaucracy. The reason is this, the Kanakan or the Kanakpile um, was a man um, who was very, very central to uh, uh, settlement life, uh, at least we know from the uh, 15th, 16th centuries, probably earlier, uh, because he was the person who really controlled uh, knowledge about revenue, uh, credit, and land. He was the person who knew um, uh, how much was being cultivated in a particular settlement, who was doing the cultivation, and he ultimately held the authority to oversee or witness um, forms of sales, uh, land transfers, and in, in a sense, uh, the organization of social life. So that was one. The other thing I realized is that the figure, the accountant, the Kanakan, was also uh, ubiquitous in other sort of 17th and 18th century institutions, uh, monasteries, temples, mosques, um, all forms of uh, commercial um, uh, entities. And um, so it began to, to become very clear that any history of the bureaucracy, um, uh, which was interested in thinking about practice and the connection between credit, um, credit relations and trust, had to really think about this figure. And uh, his centrality, uh, in a sense, made the project of building the colonial bureaucracy for colonial officials a project of taming the Kanakan. And yet, as we see in the book, the forms of legibility that were expected of the Kanakan were A, not fulfilled, but on the other hand, the forms of knowledge that the Kanakan actually mastered were in a way uh, so uh, deep that uh, he couldn't be dispensed with. And so he becomes a ubiquitous part of the 
revenue system and in, indeed remains a hereditary office in South India till the 1980s. So it's a very, very long history um, of, uh, of control, uh, which then animates why this Kanakan uh, becomes such an important figure um, uh, for us, uh, you know, as students of the bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so my next question is a, a very yeah, practical question that maybe lots of people are thinking about if they're listening at home. I was wondering, like, what language did these scribes usually write in? And what, how was, what, what language they chose to write in or were asked to write in? How was this perceived in relation to the other languages in use at the time? So thanks for that. Actually, that's a really interesting and useful question. The Kanakan actually kept records uh, on palm leaf. And palm leaf um, is a, a kind of an organic matter. Uh, and it... Um, uh, dissipates or sort of it doesn't um, last for many years. And so one of the ways in which uh, it is preserved and hence this kind of record keeping practice was preserved was by rewriting. And uh, so the, the Kanakan actually wrote um, in Tamil, but it was a very sort of, uh, it was, this, it was uh, and although he uses Tamil script, uh, the way in which the notations were written, the mathematics, the account keeping, um, uh, and indeed the information that was actually um, uh, uh, written down um, was, uh, in a way, uh, something that only he knew, and it wasn't, and something that only his kin knew. So it wasn't a form of knowledge that was very legible at all. Um, and so one of the projects of the East India Company uh, became to render these accounts uh, legible. And so they made this kind of legibility to be the sort of the source of, uh, you know, the basis of a legitimate record. Whereas for the Kanakan, it was really in his authority as a person, in his capacity to remember. Um, and, uh, you know, and in, in the Kanakan's case, it also, you know, comes with all of this, um, all of the weight of the kind of uh, social hierarchy that he kind of oversaw, right? That he knew this knowledge and he didn't actually uh, share it uh, very, uh, in, in terms of writing, right? With his, uh, with with the other people uh, in the, in the settlement. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, I mean, maybe I mean I liked all of the chapters, but maybe the chapter I most enjoyed was uh, was chapter four, which looks more about looks more into questions of education. We talked a little bit, or you talked a little bit about this in, in chapter three, and uh, in chapter four, you you claim I think right towards the end of the chapter when you say that the colonial encounter changed the the schooling system into being places where people went to learn to read and write. So I was wondering, could you talk us through what you, what you mean by this statement? Mm -hmm. um, so, so let me sort of back up a, a bit and say that one of the reasons why I became quite interested in the schooling was because I, because for me, this, uh, the project of trying to identify the field of power that is the bureaucracy and the field of intermediation that is the bureaucracy um, had to include not just the kind of uh, colonial interventions in, you know, the actual assessment of land or the measuring of grain and so on, but also the uh, the modes of uh, knowledge transmission that they wanted to control. And as I said, make in order to build uh, a system where a, a record could be legible, uh, they found themselves having to uh, uh, intervene in pedagogy. And one of the things we see that happens in the early 19th century with the, the indigenous sort of the village school um, is that the, uh, the, the colonial government begins to experiment very much um, with the kinds of 
um, uh, uh, skills that it expects its uh, revenue um, uh, uh, subjects, I mean, revenue, bearing, uh, revenue record keepers and so on to have. And that has an impact on the school. Um, so in effect, although the school itself where students were uh, trained to write on palm leaf, they were uh, learning to read and write, not to read and write in terms of continuous writing, as I call it, but in terms of recollection, to build their recollection, uh, they were learning to actually become very astute, um, uh, very, very uh, nimble-minded uh, computational sort of uh, students. Um, that world had to accommodate itself to a job market where you were required to uh, uh, provide sort of secretarial skills. And what's interesting about the whole transformation in the early 19th century is that it's not, you know, it wasn't just a kind of a direct a line that was drawn between the Thinne school, the village school, and the company's own kind of expectations of a good bureaucrat. But that whole system was mediated by missionaries and by catechists, by uh, philologists working for the company who were demanding that a new Tamil be written. Um, and in that, it is in that context that the norms of what text, texts meant and what you were supposed to do with texts um, began to really center around your capacity to sign, your capacity to write and uh, read at sight. Um, earlier, you had... Uh, uh, you know, in the in the in the Thinne school, you were being trained to actually, as I said, remember and recite. And now you were, uh, in a way, um, whether you went to the Thinne school or not, you were expected to um, uh, actually read and write at sight in order to get a kind of a clerical um, position. Um, so this was one thing that that happened. And the other thing was also that uh, increasingly uh, you had to go through a certain kind of certification process. And I don't talk about this in my book, but it really unfolds in the 19th century when the education department is set up and exams are put into place. Um, and the system is set up whereby you have to find yourself certified in order for you to actually uh, get into the clerical, clerical market. And uh, that's the reason why I got quite interested in schooling. And I came to this conclusion that this idea of recollection uh, sort of, becomes uh, subservient to this idea of uh, being able to read and write at sight. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that so much. I suppose um, what might be in lots of people's minds listening to this and was, and was definitely in my mind until it came up in the fifth chapter was that with so much paper sort of flying around, then there's such so much scope for the possibility for, um, for forgery or, or duplication duplication and this is what you talk about a little bit in, in or a lot in, in chapter five so I was wondering what role did forgery and allegations of forgery play in the colonial rule? Um, yeah so one of the things that happens with continuous writing which is a kind of a norm that the East India Company is putting out there and putting into place is that um, uh, as, you, as you correctly point out the volume of paperwork um, really expands and the claim that is made or the kind of uh, expectation uh, uh, of that uh, paper world is that it renders the world that it records transparent, right? So that's the kind of an the norm uh, of this kind of record keeping that the East India Company um, was putting into place. Um, the idea being that if this paper was actually uh, 
a way of rendering the world legible, way of rendering the world transparent, it could also uh, be therefore accountable in some senses. So it was almost that in the everyday writing, there's a certain kind of micro practice of accountability being put into place. But of course, that doesn't quite work. And the sort of uh, claim of coherence that uh, a bureaucracy sort of often makes uh, doesn't um, actually stand when you look at all the different ways in which um, uh, uh, all the different mediating ways in which uh, the bureaucracy is the bureaucracy is rendered um, uh, as a space, right? And so, in my um, in my chapter on forgery, I began to really think about okay, what were how is it? And this is working out of you know one of Vina Das's uh, observations that as the forms of legibility multiply, forms of illegibility also sort of gain ground. And I began to really follow the different ways in which not just counterfeiting um, signatures or counterfeiting documents became part of this document Raj, um, but the, 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 uh, the demand for paper actually created these gray bazaars where people would go and um, make their documents, write, get their petitions written, get their uh, signatures kind of put into place. And this created a great deal of anxiety in the colonial offices in terms of trying to render uh, which document was credible, um, how to sort of the protocols through which one decides whether a signature is authentic, uh, the way in which a document perhaps arrives at the colonial office. Um, so there are um, uh, uh, sort of, there's a sort of a profound anxiety with which the colonial uh, official received the document. Um, there was something else that also happens, which I began to document in, um, Chapter five, which is that the state then responds by selectively um, um, sort of focusing on some forms of documentation and leaving other forms to the uh, other forms of, of, uh, of power, sort of in a more kind of a discretionary realm. So on the one hand, it demanded all this proof from its subjects, but on the other hand, it played this very selective. Uh, it created a very selective documentary system where. Um, in fact, the, uh, the tehsildar, um, certain petty officials, um, could actually um, do a number of activities off the record. And this sort of creates this peculiar pincer-like situation of power, where on the one hand, as a subject, you're constantly producing paper and you're constantly presenting yourself as a subject, presenting yourself in front of the company's state um, as somebody who was bound by paper. But on the other hand, it wasn't, of course, a to mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is exactly what you what you go on to talk about in chapter six, right? The the way that paper really changes the the colonial subject, especially when when you went, especially when yeah when people went and petitioned, um, and petitioned the state. So, I was wondering, could you talk a little bit more about this? I mean, the one thing that uh, we haven't talked about, and I should say as a preface to my discussion of this kind of everyday paper world, especially the paper of the, the document genre of the petition is that these things have a very have had a very long life in the Indian subcontinent because of the Mughal Empire and because of various uh, you know since the 12th and 13th centuries a certain kind of Persianate uh, uh, record keeping edifice uh, which rendered uh, a number of um, uh, record keeping systems commensurate right so the petition or the arzi is a, a Persian a Persianate term that the company government uh, in a way appropriated uh, for this new bureaucratic system that it was setting up. And so the, in this ecology, 
uh, it drew on a number of assumptions about the petition that already circulated or were already present, and then sort of uh, yoked them to um, a new uh, uh, a new goal. And the goal really was to have a, a petitioner uh, uh, individuate herself or himself um, uh, as an individual in front of a company um, or uh, as part of a collective by signing individually. And so the sincerity with which the uh, the colonial government expected its petitioners to petition and address uh, the company becomes the subject of um, the sixth chapter. And uh, what you see in this kind of landscape is again the proliferation of petition bazaars, the proliferation of all sorts of ways by which the petition appears uh, in front of the collector or the magistrate, and the magistrate's uh, inability actually to define. Um, sincerity and his uh, inability to actually, even in the language of the petition, uh, try and determine the authenticity of the petition, right? And so this this very thing that was supposed to create this form of sincerity and, you know, a trustful address between the subject and the company becomes a really important site of, the, of a kind of a political negotiation um, uh, about uh, a, a, a political negotiation. Now, the other aspect of this petitioning um, process was also that the colonial government privileged petitioning as the only form of address. And what it ends up doing, therefore, ended up doing, therefore, was to delegitimate um, other forms of protest that were very, very common. And that, of course, continued. Uh, it's not that, you know, peasants stopped running away or it's not that there were no armed rebellions after that. But uh, what I was trying to track was the new, the new kind of emphasis that was laid on the idea uh, of the petition and what the, what they were trying to do with the petition, um, how they wanted to use it as a mode of um, kind of disciplining a certain kind of conduct. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you. It really is a, a fascinating, yeah, it really is a fascinating discussion, this chapter. I really enjoyed it. Now, as, as always on this podcast, I always get these like beautiful, rich books and I, and I shoot through them all quite quickly with, with questions. So I was wondering, is there anything that you'd like to highlight that I might have missed with my questions? Well, actually, you know, it's interesting that this discussion um, has made me sort of think about perhaps three uh, themes that I was interested in following uh, through the book, right, across the chapters. And one of them, and we've talked a lot about that, one of them, which is a kind of what I call a textual habitus. And that's a term that I owe to Brinkley Messick, who wrote this wonderful book called The Calligraphic State about Yemen. Um, uh, and about paperwork there. Um, and so one theme that I was trying to follow was this idea. Of <coughs> the other um, theme, and that's something we talked about too, is this kind of claim to transparency that it is put ironically in place through this mediating apparatus that is the bureaucracy. And the third um, was, I really, I, I, you know, though I don't really sort of directly address this question as a theoretical problem, um, in the book, one of the uh, motivating desires for writing the book in this way was also to examine the colonial archive, to really think about the practices of the bureau of, of bureaucracy that constitute the archive, and to make visible the social world and the kind of the anxieties about legi leg legibility and um, and uh, authenticity that were written into the very fabric of the archive. Why the archive? Uh, selects certain things as official, why it sort of excludes certain things as uh, illegible. A concrete example is that the Kanakan's records, um, which are on palm leaf, which are available 
uh, in South India are not catalogued as part of the official archive uh, of the Tamil Nadu government, for example. They sort of just exist uncatalogued in many manuscript libraries. So, you know, part of my effort was really also to think about um, a different way, if possible, to, uh, to write about the colonial archive um, and to really have us really think about this relationship between uh, languages that we use in the everyday, in, in my case, Tamil, and the languages of the official record that um, colonial historians uh, end up, uh, you know, looking at, which is English. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wonderful. Thanks so much. And thanks so much for this discussion. Um, so now this, well, this book has is, is, is been out for a short while, and I can see from the, from, and I know that this research actually is even, is even older. So I was wondering, what, what are your current and, and future projects now? Um, well, uh, uh, so this, this book was really about writing and it was about these petty revenue officials and the way in which, you know, they were able to accrue so much discretionary power. And that's a question uh, in some ways that is really important, uh, even for the sort of the history of South India, uh, where in the Madras presidency, the earliest sort of big political movements were really about uh, not just government jobs, but uh, uh, questions of education, political representation, you know, questions that centered very much about the, on the caste question, which were incubated in this, um, uh, by this documentage and by the way in which the bureaucracy was set up. Now, as I was doing this research, I became quite interested in this problem of discretionary power. And as a result of that, I'm now currently doing research on uh, the imposition of martial law in South India. Uh, in the same period, and I'm actually trying to understand what were the different ways in which and where exactly were these forms of uh, extraordinary laws imposed, um, and how uh, and what sort of um, uh, histories that uh, can be written by looking at um, those uh, sorts of impositions. So that's what I'm working on, and it's a story that's taking me a little bit into the Weinard area, a little bit into Ganjam, which are all sort of parts of the old Madras presidency. But it's also making me read much more on places like Burma and uh, uh, Sri Lanka, uh, Jamaica, uh, areas that I'm still sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, and, and much more with, uh, with legal history as well. Wonderful. That sounds like that's fascinating. We look forward, um, yeah, we look forward to seeing the fruits of that sometime in the future. Um, so there's nothing more for me to do apart from to thank you again for, for coming on the podcast. It's been really nice speaking to, speaking to you today and I really enjoyed reading your book. So thanks again. Thank you very much, Ian. And thanks very much, as I said, for setting up this forum uh, for this kind of interaction. Thanks so much for downloading the new books in South Asian Studies podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook, and today we've been talking about Document Raj by Bahani Raman. I really, really love this book. I hope you enjoyed listening to our discussion today. I know I enjoyed speaking to Bhavani about her book, and I also hope you download the podcast again next time. Ta-ra!